Hello and welcome to Conversations with Writers. Talking to writers about what drives them to tell their stories. Author Michael Robotham knows what it's like to be scared, often tapping into his own life and the headlines of crimes past to create that scent and taste of true fear for his readers. Michael is a multi-million copy bestseller, capturing the attention of a global audience with every new psychological thriller. His latest work, The Other Wife, is a dark and often deeply personal story. Hello, Michael. Thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure. Now, Michael, your latest book is The Other Wife. You've had one wife for 30 years or a little bit more, but you have married her twice, the first time being in secret. Why was that? We were living in London as boyfriend and girlfriend. Although Actually, no, we were engaged. That's right, we were engaged to be married. But under the terms of our visa, we could only stay in the UK for two years. But I would, I'd been sponsored by a newspaper to stay in the UK. But unless we were married, Vivian was going to have to leave. And uh, so the only way to get around that, we thought, well, we're going to have to get married. So we married at a registry office at King's Cross on a Monday afternoon. King's Cross was a very um, run-down sort of cr- almost sort of, you could almost see the crack addicts sort of uh, spilling out and hanging out in doorways. It wasn't a very salubrious area. Um, we'd arranged two witnesses, friends of ours. One of them failed to show up on time. So I had to go over to the Wimpy Bar over the road and I paid someone a fiver <laughs> <laughs> to come and be uh, <laughs> to witness our wedding, um, so we married. We married that day at a registry office. Vivian had come from work; she was working for Qantas. I was working for the Mail on Sunday, and uh, a newspaper. And then we came back to Australia eighteen months later, and we married again. And Vivian got her proper wedding, although technically that was an illegal wedding because. Uh, you cannot marry someone if you are already married. And because we didn't want, Vivian didn't want to tell her parents, who were very religious, didn't want to say we were already married, uh, we kept it secret. And so we married again, illegally the second time, the full church wedding, um, uh, which would create great complications if we ever were to get divorced because we'd have to... We'd do it twice. We'd have to sort of get one marriage declared void on the grounds that it was illegal and then get married under get divorced under british law or something like that it's it a lot of effort to get to i know more I know. than usual i know <laughs> vivian's been one of your biggest supporters obviously throughout your career tell me about the time that she rang you or tried to ring you while you're working first started work on fleet street uh, it was it's a difficult thing to get work on Fleet Street if you're if I mean it's it it is I guess the holy grail of all journalists is to work if you're pretty if you're British but also anywhere internationally really I mean New York and London are the two great newspaper capitals and so everyone working for small suburban and provincial papers they all want to play with the big guys in the big league and so I managed to get having started my career in Australia I went to London and I managed to get. Uh, a shift on the Mail on Sunday, which is a Sunday newspaper there, which was a big thing, and this was my chance to hopefully break in and prove them I could do something. And um, I'd been there for a few hours, and I'd given Vivian a number to call me if she needed me, and she phoned up, and unbeknown to me and to her, if if a call wasn't answered, it went straight through to the news desk and the news editor. And, of course, I wasn't, I'd been sent out on a job, and so the news editor picked up the phone and uh, and said, and Vivian asked for Michael Robotham. He said, Michael's out on a little job at the moment. And Vivian said, a little job? What do you mean a little job? Someone should tell that news editor that he's a damn fine journalist and should be getting big jobs. <laughs> at which point the news editor said, Madam, I am the news editor. <laughs> And by the time I got back to the office, this story had gone right through the building. How this Australian, this Australian stringer or freelancer, this ca- a casual, had had his girlfriend ring up and berate the news editor about not giving him big enough stories. 
But I think it was the making of me because that afternoon, most casuals at the paper were treated like dog spotters. But that afternoon, when all the sort of senior journalists were going off to the pub for a drink, one of them turned to me and said, you're coming for a drink. And it was almost as though um, unwittingly she meant that I'd become accepted in the newsroom. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. The other thing, another thing she did, which again unwittingly probably changed my career more so than anything else, was that um, was when we, you know, when, when I'd been working in London for this two years, it looked like I was going to be given a staff job. And suddenly there were issues over my visa and we were going to have to leave the country with no guarantee that I'd be allowed to come back to the UK. And and I I arranged to get my CV together and I put together a series of clippings of all these big stories I'd done. I'd, I'd had a lot of front page stories with big features. and I sent them all off to the major newspapers in, in Australia, The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald and The Australian. I'm thinking, thinking, look, surely with my experience of two years on Fleet Street, surely that one of them's going to offer me a job. And uh, and Vivian went down to the post office and she posted all of these off and we heard nothing. Weeks and weeks and weeks passed and I heard nothing. And I was in complete despair thinking that no one wanted to employ me and I had to leave the country, the UK. So we made a decision that rather than rush home, because there were no jobs for me, that we would arrange to do this six-month trip home across Europe and Asia from London to Kathmandu and down through Southeast Asia and uh, and then get back to Australia. And it was the day before we were due to leave on that trip, I got three phone calls in the space of an hour from the editors of all the, the biggest newspapers in the country offering me jobs. And I, and I said to them, where have you been? And they said, well, what do you mean? I said, I sent you my CV months ago. And they said, yes, but you sent it by sea, not by air. <laughs> she... <laughs> Vivian had failed to put enough stamps on the envelope, so these CVs had gone by sea, hence the fact that nobody had received them. They had phoned me the moment they got my CV. But by at that point, it was too late. We'd booked this long holiday, this long trip, and I had to tell these people, look, uh, I'm sorry, I can't come back now. But in a sense, I think that again changed our lives, that the, that trip and that holiday and that my determination to get back to the UK all came about because... She failed to put enough stamps on an envelope. Would you suggest you thanked her for that at the time? Well, at Michael? the time, I, I use it as an example of, I guess it's a sliding door sort of scenario we talk about, how some small, seemingly inconsequential thing can change your life. Now, it can do it tragically by just failing to look the right way when you step off a curb or, you know, a chance meeting or whatever. But in that case, it was something as simple as, as, as not putting enough stamps on an envelope changed, changed our lives. She's always been one of your first readers, if not your first reader. Um, how did she go the first time you had to present a sex scene to her? <laughs> she's, she's my what's known as um, Stephen King referred to, to all writers should have what he called designated readers, about half a dozen of them, people that you trust give you an honest opinion. Um, Vivian is my designated reader, my first one. I, I don't trust her. Well, when I say I don't trust her, I trust her to tell me good things. <laughs> She's clever enough and had been with me long enough to know that I don't take criticism well. Um, but I do recall when I wrote, um, and when I wrote the first novel and created the character of Joe O'Loughlin and he had a wife, you know, the great love of his life with Julianne, and Vivian kept trying to see herself in Julianne. And kept trying to say to me, you're just trying to create the perfect wife, aren't you? She's much better. She's a better cook than I am. She's more attractive than I am. She does charity work. She does that. She's the perfect woman. And I can't try to explain to her that this is fiction, but she wouldn't sort of buy into that. And then, of course, she reached that point in the book where there was a sex scene. And Vivian sort of looked, read this scene, looked up at me and said, who did you do that with? Oh, dear. <laughs> and I remember, uh, and I was trying to explain to her that no one, I said, it's, it's imaginary. I have imagined you know i've created these characters and imagined this sex scene and vivian said what you fantasized about it 
I mean, no, 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 no <laughs> not really, not really. The no-win conversation. Oh, yeah. Who did you fantasize about doing it with? And at which point I said, well, you, of course, you. Oh, I'm not doing that, Buster. <laughs> <laughs> One of the um, lovely quotes that I've read from you over the many, many years that you've had to uh, endure being on the other side of a microphone is that in 2009 you were the ambassador for a reading program and talking about sex, um, you decide to give your quote as, if you don't like reading, you don't like sex. That's true. You know, whenever people say they don't like books, they don't like reading, I do think it's like saying you don't like sex. They're just not doing it right. You know, I mean, it's... For people who are lapsed readers, you put the right book into their hand and they're back in the fold. It's like saying if you don't like sex, you know, I mean, you've really got to be doing it, <laughs> doing something wrong, you know. Um, and... Um, and I think it is like that. It's like my relationship with, you know, with books is like that. You know, I think it's and 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 I, I think all readers should take it upon themselves to almost be ambassadors, you know, to because we all know how wonderful it is to recommend a book to a friend and to have them come back and go, "Wow, that was remarkable." You know, thank you so much. You know, what else can you recommend? I mean, you know, it does give us that incredibly warm, fuzzy feeling like weeing in a wetsuit, you know. It's just, you know, and um, it's one of the greatest things in the world to know that it's like choosing the perfect present for someone and and a book is the perfect present. What about the perfect character? Because often we choose books because of the characters in them and we stay with that character for as long as possible. The Other Wife, of course, features Joe O'Loughlin, who you started writing with, and Joe is a bit of a... The suggestion is a bit of a wish fulfillment for yourself. He's a he's a clinical he's psychologist. Not, yeah, he's certainly not perfect. I mean, I think the one thing it's one of the great truisms of writing is that I mean, it's a bit like you know we don't deal in perfect crimes because a perfect crime is a crime that we don't even know exists. You know, we don't even realise it's happened, and and perfect marriages are boring, so we don't want to write about those. And perfect characters are equally boring. Um, and I think um, Joe is imperfect and he has his flaws. I think the wish fulfillment with Joe comes out that I am I am a coward, you know, of the first order. I mean, I'm my, I'm my mother's son. My mother once screamed so loudly at a cinema they stopped the film and turned the lights up. Okay, that is me. Um, I, don't like, I don't do scary films. I frighten myself writing, uh, but I, don't, I will not go and watch a horror movie. Um, and I, I guess Joe is braver than I am. He will walk into that dark warehouse at three o'clock in the in the morning. I wouldn't. Uh, uh, he is far cleverer than I am. So I guess that's wish fulfillment. Uh, Could I challenge that for a minute, though, Michael? Because I think you're being a bit unfair to yourself. Because being a journalist, especially a foreign correspondent at times, as you were takes enormous fortitude and sense of self and confidence and, and bravery to a certain extent because you've seen things, you've been first on the scene during your early days as a journalist of, of murders and truck drivers who have been immolated in front of you, these terrible incidents. Yeah, but that doesn't make you, that doesn't make you brave. All right. Well, what oh, because well, I'm giving an example. I mean, I... During a lot of my early career, I worked for afternoon newspapers and the bread and butter of afternoon newspapers were police rounds and court reporting. And police rounds required, back in those days, less so now, thankfully, um, required journalists to do death knocks. Now, death knocks is where, you know, once the police release the name of a victim, uh, you have to knock on the door of their, their loved ones and try to get a photograph of them and talk to them. It is, without doubt, one of the most terrible jobs you have to do as a journalist. And the thing is, because I think I was so young, I started journalism and I just turned 18, and I was so, I looked so young, um, I was very good at them. But I would vomit in the flower bed before I knocked in the door. I was so nervous. And I think almost when they opened that door, they felt sorry for me. And the reason I was so successful at getting those photographs is these people actually began to comfort me rather than the other way around. You know, at one point, I remember a mining disaster out in Cobar when I think 19 people had died. I did 19 death knocks in an afternoon. 
you know, um, I don't, I actually think I'm actually a, 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 a shy person. And the one thing that journalism gave me, it gave me a badge. Whereas Vivian would tell you now, I'm, what I'm terrible at is complaining at a restaurant or, or, or you know, about poor service or, or, or taking something back that is, that is broken. I'm awful at it. I don't like confrontation. But you make me a journalist and you say I've got to go and put my foot in that door and champion someone who's been ripped off by someone or, or, or whatever, and I'll do that. It's like I put a cape on. I know it sounds stupid, you know, and it doesn't, I don't think I'm a superhero, but it's as though someone's given me a badge or given me a hat to wear and I can play. I can play you can that. play the role in many ways. Exactly. You've got that authority imbued to you. Exactly, and that's why, you know, I could do that, you know, and I've done it for people when they ring up and say they've been treated appallingly by the local council or their power's been turned off or by disability services or whatever. As a journalist, I would go in and I would, you know, take no prisoners in defending them and getting them justice. But when it came to me, I was terrible doing it for myself. You know, and I think that was the difference. And that's why, as a foreign correspondent, I wore a badge, so to speak. You know, um, I, I was that person. Uh, and that made me braver, and I think that got me over a lot of my shyness. If you remember, I grew up, I grew up in such isolated country towns that my parents didn't own a, own a phone when I left school. Okay, so I had spoken on a telephone only a couple of times in my life when I had to phone the newspaper. When I got to my job at Fairfax, had to send a telegram. Because I had no way, they had no way phoning me to say that I had the job, and I had to phone them back. And I remember crowding into a phone box with my father, and my father was a big man. We were squeezed into this phone box, okay, and he was showing me how to use this phone so I could phone the newspaper office and say that I accepted their cadetship, you know. Um, and I remember talking on this phone, and it sounded as though, because I was not used to talking to someone on a phone, that they were in a wheat silo. You know, and I was thinking, I can't really hear what they're saying, you know. Um, but, and, I, and that just made me nervous and I was insecure so much so. When I, and, 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 but journalism, it made me more secure and certain. Mm, that's, in, that's fascinating, especially when looking at your history where, and I'm going to use an example from when you were working over in Fleet Street and you were covering an Irish bookie scam. What happened, therefore, for someone who has felt this level of unconscious fear or uncertainty, what happens when you go back to your hotel room and find people <laughs> waiting for you? Yeah, that was a, um, yeah, it was a, it was a massive betting plunge on the Cheltenham Gold Cup, which is one of the, the major flat racing uh, races in, in, in the UK. And an Irish punter had won about £4 million on, in this very sophisticated betting plunge where people are, all around the country had gone into betting shops at precisely the same moment and put money on this horse, which uh, which then romped home. And I, and the newspaper I worked for decided we were going to, we wanted to investigate this guy, tell the people who this guy was. He was sort of, he was the whale when it came to gamblers. And uh, I was sent to, to Dublin and, and other journalists were sent down to Cheltenham and straight away from the moment I arrived in Dublin and I talked to the local racing writers in Ireland, they told me, go home, leave, this, leave it alone. This man launders money for the IRA. You know. So they're warning you off. Right? Oh, they warned me off. And I remember phoning my editor, um, I phoning my editor in London saying, I don't think we should do this story. And he took the attitude um, that, ah, look, just give it a bit longer, just see what you can find out. It's too good a story to, to walk away from. You know, and, and these local, they're, they're just trying to protect their contacts. You know, what do these guys know? Well, anyway, what happened? I spent the day gathering stories about how this man would, you know, go in and out of casinos with bin bags full of cash, you know, laundering money and, and got back to my hotel that night and there were, there were three men wearing balaclavas waiting in my hotel room who bounced me off the walls and bundled me into a car and drove me to, the airport at Dublin and pushed me out and told me um, to leave. 
I thought when they were in the car, I thought I was being executed. I thought yeah. they were taking me out into a field to execute me. Um, what, what's your head doing at that point? I thought I was dead. I thought I was. I thought I was. I was dead. You know, and um, and I and I'll never forget. Typically, um, I got airside and phoned my editor and told him what had happened. And I think he took the attitude, uh, oh, "You're the Australian. You're expendable." Because he said to me, he said to me, "Give it twenty minutes and go back." And I just <laughs> said, "No way, pal." I got on the first flight home. I didn't care what he had to say. Um, that was a story I had no intention of writing. Goodness. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I mean, things happen in journalism where you do get threatened um, and you do upset people. And, um, but I still think. Look, maybe everyone's scared, and maybe that's a sign of of of, of you know, humanity. The fact that if you weren't scared, there'd be something wrong. But I felt it didn't stop me doing the job. It stopped me doing that particular story. But um, but I never lost that fear. But I guess goes back to but I think it goes back to even right now with what I do now, and it's pretty much what I've always done is suffered from imposter syndrome um in the sense that when i was a journalist i believed that really any moment they were going to discover that i didn't know what i was doing and that i was a complete imposter and each story was going to be the one that that exposed me as being the fraud that i am and and that other people around me they were talented and they could do this job whereas i had managed to just fluke my way in and all the way through, that was through journalism, and then even when it came to writing writing novels, it was like I still to this day sign every one of my books to my to my long-term friend and agent, Mark Lucas, and I signed to him saying, we've filled them again, you know, um, because I take that attitude that this book is going to be the one that exposes me. Wow. What do you think would happen if you actually overcame that, Michael? I think it's I worry that well I think it's in the in there are people get motivated in different ways some people are motivated by the desire for success I am motivated by the fear of failure um and and I think if I would ever lose that fear and think that I I mean the reason I mean one of the reasons I think that I hopefully remain, I want to remain that way, is that I know that there are better writers than me who have never been given the opportunities or whose books haven't been discovered yet. And, and you know, any anyone that tells you that the cream always rises to the top is lying because there, there are true gems that are lie undiscovered and you have to always accept that. And whether no matter what you do, even if you're Roger Federer, you have to accept that out there, there are many people that have never picked up a tennis racket. But if they did, they'd be a better tennis player than you are. You know what I mean? You accept that. Or even some that are better than you are, but they just don't have the competitive spirit or don't have that the work ethic or whatever. But you never, ever begin to believe your own publicity. Does this sense of graciousness and, and self-awareness as an author and the responsibility of being a very popular author also come from your early interactions with Ray Bradbury when you were a child and the fact that he sent you books um, after you'd written a letter to him, which, which was a real, a real gift at that time? Have you yeah. ever felt that and carried that with you as far as the way you I engaged? Think so. No, I think he was, I mean, I, I think Ray Bradbury was, you know, he, he was he was a humble man and i mean he's a man that you know wrote his first books at a public library using a typewriter that you had to put quarters into to give yourself 15 minutes on this typewriter before you had to put another quarter in there goodness that's you'd want to poor, be focused you know that's how poor you'd want to be focused and that's how poor he was with a wife and kids trying to to sell short stories you know um it's like you know i love the stephen king the stephen king story he, he, he writes about um, in on writing when he, it's, it's just part memoir you know about being at his lowest deb you know working in a in a laundry cleaning sort of tablecloths for seafood restaurants that are often just 
covered in maggots and horrible sort of smells and whatnot, and his daughter falling sick and then not having the money to pay for her medicine. And that's when he sold the rights to carry, you know, that first novel of his. And you think that's when you realise, you know, this is a tough, you know, it's not it's not as tough as raising, writing isn't as tough as raising a disabled child or, or, or countless other jobs out there. But I think you always have to accept how fortunate you are if you have the opportunity to do it. Do you think that some of some of your success has been driven by the same success of being a journalist when you're writing profile pieces on people and also as a ghostwriter is that you seem to have enormous empathy for your subjects and that includes your characters and you've previously written about empathy and said we shouldn't be scared of empathy. No, I think it's what I think the ghostwriting was one of those things having one of the things that ghostwriting taught me um was having you know done fifteen autobiographies for for people. I mean, they've written and therefore spent months and months with them and having them cry on your shoulder and telling you their deepest secrets. Where you realise, and and all of these people are noteworthy. I mean, people publishers don't approach someone to write their autobiography unless they've had a remarkable life. So these people, and therefore, tend to be mercurial. You know, they they have doubts. I mean, they have. Um, I've never, you know, none of them that I ever work with, you know, were assholes, so to speak, if you know what I mean. They all were prone to self-doubt. And I think, um, I think that's why, and I, and I think the great advantage I had when I began ghostwriting was that people wanted to know that. I mean, people, when they picked up an autobiography, didn't want to know that the celebrity that they'd always admired was some bright, perfect jeweled of a human being that had never had a broken heart that had never suffered doubts had just had this i mean a it would be boring book um but they wanted to know these people you know had suffered and had similar sort of fears and and um and had been through hardships and whatever and and i think that way the the more honest that person could be you know the more people empathize with them and the more people grew to love them and that's why i'd often say to people they might think an autobiography was a way to settle old scores like turn into a hagiography you know i am going to basically use this book to pay out on everyone that has ever wronged me everyone that's ever you know looked at me askance or whatever and in the end books like that don't work because they're just full of bile and hatred um, the books that work are the ones that, in fact, you you write about all the hardship and maybe you say nice things about these people and all you have to do is drop one detail in of, of something terrible they've done to you, having been nice about them up until then, and that skewers them more completely than anything else. Completely changes the narrative in that Yeah, because you don't look then like a, a sort of shrew, sort of Harridan-like sort of whinger you look like someone who's so nice that you almost don't want to say what horrible things have been done but you just drop it in there that skewers them completely (laughs) well you have said that writing is the shameless manipulation of another human being's senses does that stay with you is that the ambition to manipulate people and their senses it is but it's not it is what you do but you don't want to be seen to be doing it because when people can see the strings, you know, when people can see it, when it's too obvious, it's like, you know, um, it's like seeing a wobbly set or it's like, like seeing the strings on a puppet. When, it, when people realize that you're tugging their strings and manipulating them, it loses some of the magic. What you want to do is you want them to not realize that you're doing it until that moment that they feel themselves in tears or fearful, and and then they, you you know you want them to say, "You bastard! You've done that to me," you know. Um, but it's what you do. It's like telling a story. So I when I used to say this to people that, that I was ghostwriting for, you know, let's just say, you know, I was doing your autobiography, or let's just say, James, you and I, we'd never met each other. We meet on a plane, or we meet in a bar, 
and just strike up a conversation. And I ask you, tell me about yourself. You're not going to tell me the most boring bits, okay? You're going to tell me the stories that you think are going to make me laugh or are going to move me or surprise me. You are going to try to interest me, and that's what storytelling is. So when, whether you be writing a novel or whether I'm writing a ghosting an autobiography, I'm trying to engage a reader and draw them closer and have them lean in, you know, and, and to hold their attention and have them laugh or to cry or to utter amazement, you know, a, a shock gasp. Many of your stories are informed by real-life events, and so researching you, one of the great joys has been going back and looking at those, those influences. Certain stories almost had to be toned down when you've rewritten them because the, the fact is almost unbelievable compared to yeah, the fiction. It's true. I mean, I, I, the example I often give is if, if, you know, if 10 years ago or whatever I'd, I'd written a novel about, you know, a father that locked his daughter, imprisoned his daughter in a basement and fathered seven children by her, you know, some of whom had died, and she kept, you know, he kept them there for 30 years, you readers would look at that and go, get away. That's ridiculous. You know, I mean, the truth is, is always stranger. And so often when I look at going back through my journalistic career, there are stories I could not include in a novel. If I put them in a novel, no one would believe them. You know, and so, you know, it's, it's a bit like the way I think it was, um, I'm trying to think whether it was Edgar Allan Poe that said that a, a, a fiction writer should not write with God in their lap, should not rely on outrageous coincidences to make their plot work. And yet we all know in life outrageous coincidences happen, you know, um, but they don't happen in fiction. They don't work in fiction. In fiction, you know, that you can't get away with that because people won't believe it. In real life, they have to accept it. Do you have any personal stories that you've, out of the ones that you've picked, the ones that you really enjoyed more than others? In terms of one, the, the ones that inspired the, yeah. the books? Um, I guess the one that, you know, the book that, of all the books that I've written, you know, I know writers aren't supposed to talk about having a favourite book because your favourite book is supposed to be the one you're promoting now. Um, you know, but uh, I think every writer will tell you that when they begin writing a particular story, the book they have in their head is this incredibly bright, perfect object. And the book they write is never quite as bright and perfect as the one they imagined. That's the gap you're trying to bridge. You're trying to get as close as you can the book that's in your head onto the page. And of all the books I've done, the book I've come closest to getting out of my head onto the page was Life or Death. Um, the one that won the Gold Dagger, UK CWA Gold Dagger, and um, and and that the seed of that idea, you know, I, it was 1985, March the 20th, 1985, a two paragraph story in the Sydney Morning Herald about a man who escaped from prison the day before he was due to be released. Um, and I remember thinking at the time, you know, as everyone would, why, why would someone do that? Why would someone? have served the equivalent of two life sentences and escaped the day before they're due to be released. And I knew, I cut that story out, that paragraph out, and I knew there was a novel in there. I just had to think of a reason. And it took me about 10 years to come up with a reason why someone would escape the day before their release. And then I think it took me about another 10 years to before I, I, I had the courage to think I could write the story because I was going to set it in somewhere very... I mean, the one thing to set my books in the UK, I lived there for, for 10 years or 12 years. To set a book in Texas, a place I've never lived, with full, all not fish-out-of-water characters but all local characters, that was a huge challenge to get that vo the voices right and to get it, all of that right. Um, but I guess that they're the sort of real life stories that I, or paragraphs that I sort of pick up and, and seed the books in. You spent a year working in Africa. 
crime novels and the crime genre is very, very successful through throughout parts of Africa. And you've suggested that may be because of the known lack of justice within the criminal justice system over there. I wonder how much of that taps into what we were talking about before, which is your own sense of, as a journalist, looking for justice for others. Because even Joe Lachlan in The Other Wife makes regular references to some of the, the great annoyances of his life, like the story of the prodigal son, yeah. that there is no grace, there is no justice here for the son who goes and spends and throws it all away. Is that you? Is that you tapping into yourself and your experiences and what you see? Oh, I think that prodigal son story, definitely. I remember, you know, being a sort of complete agnostic now, but growing up in a very Catholic family and being taken off to, to Mass every Saturday night and and being sent to Catholic primary schools and being an altar boy and having but having arguments with priests and nuns alike about you cannot tell me the prodigal son is fair. You cannot tell them that story is just. You know, I could. There are certain things which I couldn't. I would argue, I, and unfortunately, I think my daughters have inherited this and and argue with their teachers as well. Um, but um, um, look, I think I think the idea of justice definitely came. You know, as a young journalist working, you know, in in Sydney when I first began, you know, I watched. Murray Farquhar on the bench. You know, Murray Farquhar was, is famous as being one of the most corrupt magistrates in in New South Wales history. Um, I saw, witnessed firsthand some of the judgments he made in cases with the throughout, and and I saw police prosecutors in tears. You know, and it didn't, it wasn't known yet. I mean, the whispers were there, but it wasn't known yet that we were dealing with a man who was corrupt, a magistrate who was corrupt. Um, that was years to you know to come, uh, and and so as a journalist, you saw injustice. You saw. I remember, you know, one of my first ever court cases I covered was a criminal inquest into a man called Jose Bobeo, who was a, a homeless man who had been arrested by two police officers. He'd been beaten, allegedly, in police custody. And he collapsed and died the next morning in the witness box. Oh, sorry, in the in the dock when he was charged with having sworn at police officers. That's why he was arrested. And it took years to get a cranial inquest, and the inquest basically was stopped. And the coroner recommended that the police officers be charged with his murder. And the Crown Prosecution Service never charged them. It was felt that too hard to get a conviction. But injustice like that, you witness as a journalist all the time. And, and I think that is the great benefit of, of crime fiction is that you can write those wrongs, which in real life I can't. Michael, you weren't always going to be a journalist, though. You had ambitions of being a great cricketer. <laughs> I thought you were going to say a great cricketer. I thought you were going to say a lawyer because for a while there, it was only because it was expected when you were you got a certain result in, at school, you were expected to be a doctor or a lawyer. And, um, but no, I did have dreams of being a cricketer. I grew up, uh, I grew up playing backyard cricket with my, I had two brothers and a sister, my poor sister. But we, we, uh, we grew up, uh, playing backyard cricket test matches and, um, I dreamed of playing for Australia. Um, and, uh, and I knew I can identify the moment. When my ambition died. Oh, you do tell. Okay. And that was, um, I at the age of 17 was selected to play for New South Wales country against the World 11. This was during the, in the Packer, you know, World Series cricket years. And the World 11 were traveling from Sydney to Brisbane and they decided they were going to play a match against New South Wales country at, um, in Coffs Harbour. Uh, and, uh, I, the senior wicketkeeper had, uh, been injured and I, as the under 21 wicketkeeper, was chosen to play. And so I had, oh, here I was competing against Jon Snow and Garth Roo, two of the fastest bowlers in the world. And the World 11 had, you know, Khaled Duran and Lawrence Rowe. And I mean, it was just a list of who's who, these amazing cricketers that I'd grown up, you know, idolizing. Uh, and the moment I knew I would never play for Australia, uh, was when I went out to bat, um, 
and Jon Snow was bowling and all the other people were getting ready to go out to bat and were putting on chest guards and elbow guards and there were no helmets in those days. Um, I had a thigh guard that my mother had sewed for me, which was about, oh, wow. it was about a centimetre thick piece of foam <laughs> is all I had on my thigh. You know, um, and, uh, and I went out and Jon Snow pushed off the boundary and he came steaming in and he let go of the ball and I'd never played in front of a, a crowd that big and nerves, you know, overcame me and I lost sight of that ball and I ducked. Okay, and the ball was a Yorker that almost took my nose off and everyone in that crowd and everyone I feel realised that they were dealing with a very frightened 17-year-old who was so far out of his league. And I knew at that moment that I had the heart of a lion but the legs of a chicken. <laughs> and I, would, I was a good cricketer. I was a good schoolboy cricketer, but I was never going to be good enough to play for Australia. Just didn't have that those legs of cement that you need no, to face and, that down. And and it's it's like years later I wrote that story up for a British newspaper when Sachin Tendulkar at the age of seventeen had scored one of the most remarkable centuries, you know, on his first tour of, of the UK. And I wrote the story of when I was seventeen of realizing why it would never happen for me and then looking at this seventeen year old, you know, who was going to be the greatest batsman of his generation. That's the difference. The difference between good and being good enough to play at that level is enormous. Mm. Well, you're obviously good enough for what you're doing now, Michael. That's, <laughs> that should take some solos for you. <laughs> you were raised in Coffs Harbour during your teen years. Um, your father was the principal of the high school you attended, Arana. I think it's Arara High School. Um, and you didn't have the best of times, but your father was self-educated. When you learnt that, which you didn't know through while you were growing up, how did that change your opinion on what you were going to do for a living? I think what it was with Dad, he was never actually he was never principal at Arara. He became a, a headmaster or a principal, but he, um, yeah, Dad had come from Dad was the first person in his family who was sort of educated past fourteen. You know, his father, my grandfather, worked on a tick gate for most of his life. I mean, basically one of those boom gates in the middle of nowhere. You know, I mean, um, you know, he, they were a very poor, very poor family. And I just, I guess I assumed I'd worked hard at school and my older brother and sister were at university. And when I finished, and I just assumed that I would get the opportunity to go to university as well. Um, and and I got accepted to do, to do law at Sydney University and it was expected. But then um, I discovered that old dad with sort of tears in his eyes told me they had no money, they were poorer than they'd been their entire lives and that I, he couldn't send me to university or couldn't help me in any way. And I remember like most 17-year-old kids, I was, um, I was incensed. I was, you know, how dare, I mean, what do you mean? My brother and sister are going, why can't I go? You know, why? I got a better marks than they did, you know. And it was only when my mother took me aside later and, and I don't think I ever really until then knew the story of how my father had had educated himself and was teaching at one teacher's schools at the age of 16 in the middle of nowhere with no electricity and no hot water and, and had taught, you know, studying correspondence to get his sort of his proper teaching degree and then go on to become a high school teacher. He did that all on his own and... And when she told me that story, I remember being incredibly upset at the at my reaction, and also determined that if if Dad had done that on his own, that I would I would make my own way in the world. That I and I remember years later when he finally you know got back on his feet and had some money, Dad wanted to give me some money to say, look, I, I, we didn't have the money to send you. To you, but you know, I want to give you some money now, and I refused to take it, which sort of made him sad. But I was trying to tell him, "Listen, I'm proud of the fact they did it the way you did it." You know, I don't, I didn't want him to be sad about that. You know, he shouldn't see it. I can understand why he saw it as a regret. You want to be able to give your children an education at the very least. You know? But um, but I also thought, 
he had to understand that I, I admired what he'd done. The other wife opens with Joe Lachlan being called to the hospital where his father is in a coma after having beaten, being beaten within an inch of his life. Was this a very personal story for you to finally share? I think the, the elements of this story of the other wife, the particular is the father and son elements, because it is a story about fathers and sons and relationships. And, and I had, I had a very, you know, and, and there's no doubt that there, there are elements of the other wife that do reflect closely with the relationship I have with my own father. And, and not that he, my own father was anything like William O'Loughlin, you know, in the sense of, you know, he wasn't a celebrated surgeon and he didn't finish up in a coma, you know. Uh, um, but certainly he was the most influential person in my life. He was the person I most wanted to impress. Uh, he was the person that, I constantly sought sort of, you know, right down to when, you know, every time I wrote a new book, I would send it to him first. And and I guess what I wanted, and I know when he died, I wanted him to say, I wanted him to say he was proud of me. I know he was, but he never actually said it. I know he was because he told everyone, he told his mates, but you sort of want to hear it. And I know when he died, I remember saying to, to Vivian, I don't know who I'm doing this for anymore. Because each time I did a new book, it was to see, you know, for him to see. And, you know, and so in, in that sense, I think it's a, it's a personal story, The Other Wife. I mean, because in that, in, over the course of the book, Joe, who is horrified by some of his father's actions, this man that he has admired and respected and feared his entire life, slowly begins to unpack his childhood and his relationship with his father and realises that the man isn't quite the man that he thought. Not the monster, but also not the saint. But they're not so dissimilar. Journals seem to play a very important role in the other wife in revealing this other life that Joe's father led. And I wonder how much of that's been informed by some of the work you did back when you were a journalist as well of discovering these journals and diaries of people like Sappho Durrell, which was really revealed the sins of her father, Lawrence Durrell, who was one of Britain's great novelists, as well as even when you went and looked at the diaries of the Tsar of, um, of Russia, the last Tsar. These stories that are left behind for us by our parents was there any story untouched for you from your father, a story you wanted that you never got um, to hear? There were elements of, you know, there are stories like, you know, I discovered things about him uh, after he died which um, had been kept from me. My other siblings knew um, and not all flattering, but definitely not flattering stories, but not, not monstrous stories either. But, you know, he wasn't a perfect man, you know. Um, none of us are. And um, and I guess there are secrets and, you know, there are secrets which, which, again, I mean, I think that's the basis of so much fiction and so much of the great, I can't remember which was the writer who, who said it, but a quote about the fact that, you know, so much of these great storytellings is when the hand, you know, great stories when the hand reaches out of the grave and grabs you by the ankle, and it just means the buried secret, you know, that um, it's those, you know, it's whether it be the Sappho Doral or, or the Tsar and Tsarina and the Nicholas Alexander Diaries or, you know, um, or the Rasputin Files, again, which I came across in the Moscow State Archives. They're buried secrets, you know, and I think that so much of, of what we write about is about buried secrets and so much of, of our personalities, the layers of personality that we have. You know, it's one of, that's one of the things I learned from my ghostwriting, that we're not three-dimensional characters. We have so many dimensions and all of us, all of us have secrets to the point where it's one of the things I, I say when I've been touring around with the other wife that secrets are so vital to who we are that there are evolutionary psychologists now that believe that secrets fall just below oxygen and water and food as being necessities for life, that without secrets we aren't human. Really, because it defines that sense of self. It does, yeah. 
So, Michael, therefore, you've recently recovered from a quadruple bypass earlier this year. Were you aware of what secrets you were carrying going into that <laughs> surgery? Certainly not aware about my heart, uh, my, my, my blocked arteries. Um, no, I mean, that. It's, you know, it's funny. I got a, I remember having a real sort of dose of mortality, you know, or, or shock to the system when my dad died, you know, um, where you suddenly, you know, as I mentioned, where you suddenly think, God, you know, you can't imagine this is going to go, you're going to live forever. You've got to get out there and, and live life. And, um, and uh, to discover that I, you know, suddenly from thinking that I was incredibly sort of healthy, active, good diet, normal weight, all the right things. I mean, I, and to suddenly discover that my, uh, you know, of my four arteries, two were almost completely blocked and the other half, another half blocked. And you think, well, how could that happen? So I think um, it's been good. You know, it's been a wake-up call. It's been good, you know. Um, it's a reminder that, you know, uh, it's a reminder to enjoy each day. Well, it's certainly lovely to hear someone who writes about death so often to actually be <laughs> espousing the joys I'm of life. I'm not such a dark person. Isn't it funny? I, it's funny. I write about such dark subject matter, um, you know, and uh, which seems, you know, but, you know, I, I actually think I have this theory, and it, I know it's, you know, it's a typical sort of kitchen sink theory about this, that maybe the coward that I am, that I feel that if I put the dark, my darkest thoughts on the page, I'll prevent them ever happening in real life. Well, I think that's safer for all of us, Michael. <laughs> Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege to talk to you today. So thank you so much for all your time. Thank you, Jan. And The Other Wife is in stores and online right now. You can follow Michael on Twitter at Michael Robotham, and you can also find him on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at ConversationsWW and you can also like us on Facebook or leave a review on iTunes, which helps people to find the show. This has been James Rickards for Conversations with Writers. Thank you very much for listening.